0: Most Notorious contains adult themes. It is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. The episode today is a slight departure from our usual straight-up criminal fare. I've long been fascinated by the town of Deadwood. When I was a kid, I was crazy about western gunslingers to the point of obsession. And while southern Minnesota did have the Northfield Bank Raid by the James and Younger Brothers Gang, which I probably should do a show on, I was always dreaming about Tombstone, Dodge City, and Deadwood. And Deadwood happened to be one state over from me, so on more than one occasion, family vacations meant a trip to the Black Hills to see Mount Rushmore, camping, and the inevitable stop in Deadwood, where I walked the sidewalks on cloud nine, gobbling up every bit of information I could on Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane. And of course, no trip to Deadwood is complete without a peek into Saloon Number 10, where Wild Bill met his demise. So, of course, I was excited when the television show aired a few years back, as many of you were as well, I'm sure, and it certainly didn't disappoint. But I've always wondered what was historically accurate about the show and what came up a little short. So skip forward to today. I've got a podcast, <laughs> and I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to find an expert on the town of Deadwood who might be able to help separate some of the fact from the fiction. With me today is Barbara Pfeiffer, an editor of and the author of Deadwood Saints and Sinners. She's written many books and articles about the American West. This book was co-written by the late Jerry Bryant, an archaeologist and historian who consulted on the HBO series Deadwood. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure.
1: Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to be with you.
0: How long have you been studying the history of Deadwood, and how did you team up with Jerry Bryant?
1: Um... Deadwood, maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, six or seven years. But, um, when I wrote an earlier book, Bad Boys of the Black Hills and Some Wild Women, too, the publisher called on Jerry to write a forward because his name was prominent as a Black Hills, and especially Deadwood historian. Um, he really liked the book. So, that was good and uh we didn't we talked a couple times on the phone but then Jerry had a terminal illness from his navy service during the vietnam era and late in 2014 he called well no in 2014 he asked me to co-write with him this book saints and sinners because his health was Failing so badly by then, and in fact, he died in January of 2015. But um, in 2014, we started. He brought me into this book that he had done all the research for, and I helped with the writing, with uh, clearing up some things, knowing the right questions to ask him. I had a great time working with him. He was a great, great fellow, and just fun. He then asked me to work with him on another book, which I finished just this spring, and it's 16 years of research that he did.
0: Most people automatically associate The Town of Deadwood with the television show, of course, but it has a really long and interesting history, far beyond the scope of the three-season series, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. And... Jerry was a historical advisor to the writers of the TV series. He disagreed with some things that they did, and he approved of others. But he shared in their Emmy for writing that the series got, which is very nice. But that is just about the height that series follows, just the height of the rush. And really, the the boom time of Deadwood is very, very short, 1876 to about 1880. And then the population plummets or begins... First it plummets, and then it begins to just drag.
0: Can you talk about some of the early history of the Black Hills, before Deadwood, before whites began to explore and settle
1: there? Well... Um, We know of people living in the Black Hills as long ago as 9,000 years ago, 7,000 B.C., um, but very little of those pre-Indian people. The Arikara Indians lived in the Black Hills by 1,500, and then there are subsequent waves of Indians coming in and conquering the hills wave after wave, as they got pushed west or northwest from their homes. Uh, and the sequence is the Cheyenne, then the Crow, then the Kiowa, then the Pawnee, and finally the Lakota Sioux take over the Black Hills in the 1700s. They still are present there, the Lakota Sioux, and they're still... Con- Are contentious points about sacred places for the Sioux, but Jerry liked to point out that the Sioux didn't live there forever and ever. And I, you know, I think that's an important point that people, prehistoric people all over the world, moved into new areas and conquered them. In in 1743, that's the first absolute date we know of Europeans coming into current South Dakota, the Verendry brothers of France leave a plate, bury a plate at uh, what is today's pier, South Dakota, the uh, capital. They leave a plate there in 1743, noting that they have come into the area on behalf of France. They're just exploring the West and trying to get economic condition, potential economic conditions recorded for Europeans to use. You know, the the furs, the cropland potential, the lakes and rivers. So they're there in 1743 and the next we know of a white person in the hills is mountain man Jedediah Smith in 1823. But he only crossed through, passed through, crossing from east to west. And then... There has been a small piece of granite found inscribed J.M. 1846. No one knows anything more about that little record. And then some prospectors in the gold rush in 1876 find a log that was obviously hewn by an axe, and they start to dig it up, and it crumbles from rot. Because it's just been in the ground, and they don't know how old it is. All around the Black Hills in the mining era, they miners found different tools from whites that you know, mining tools. But those were not necessarily preserved or dated or anything. So that's that's pretty much what we know about beforehand. We have the Indian lore from the various nations, their creation stories using the Black Hills, and the hills were considered sacred.
0: Let's talk about the gold rush. How did the gold rush influence the development of the town of Deadwood?
1: There had been enough rumor around and enough wondering about the prospects of what is in the area that the United States government sent an, an expedition with an escort of military to protect it, and it was George Custer who commanded the escort of cavalry. But that was in 1874, and Custer made a nice little extra income on the side by writing articles and publishing them in U.S. periodicals. I believe his wife, Libby, actually wrote his articles because she was a very articulate woman and a good writer. And we all know that Custer barely squeaked through West Point and graduated at the bottom of his class, partially because of his discipline problems, which would haunt him all his career and cause his death. So, in 1874, Custer writes, we found gold at the grassroots. Now, 1874 is just a year after one of the biggest financial depressions in the United States ever began. It was called the Panic of 1873, but it lasted for years and very much left a lot of men who had families to support or who were just starting their careers without work or the prospects of work. So here it is the very next year, and this article comes out saying, hey, there's easy gold here in the Black Hills. And, of course, people started heading west. Uh, First, the prospectors and then there always were merchants and providers of all kinds of services who followed the prospectors to benefit from their hard work. So the federal government kept pushing the parties back out as much as they could. They were just escorted to the boundaries of what was part of the Great Sioux Reservation for all time set by a treaty, in the 1860s, and, you know, these men were not allowed to come on to the reservation, period. Then they kept coming, and it caused death because the Indians fought back, protected their home, and yet the men of the nation were desperate, and any gold rush attracts men to come and make a fortune quickly. They always promised they will go home and take their their earnings with them, but they tend to spend them and <laughs> have a big party while they're prospecting.
0: Always a lot of saloons, right? Gambling, prostitution?
1: Yes, yes. That's, you know, one of the first things that happened. And in 1876, the government finally gave in and, and let the whites come into that part of the Sioux Reservation. Instantly, there are mining camps all over the area around Deadwood. If you look at a map of the era, it looks like today's suburban communities where the city limits of one are flush against the city limits of another, and you have all these little towns right down the gulch at Deadwood that eventually all merge into Deadwood, which is today a long string of a town at the bottom of a very steep gulch. And so right away in Deadwood, you have two main streets. And very cleverly and very confusingly for us researchers, they named them Main Street and West Main Street. But West Main Street parallels Main Street. And right away when there was a settlement, there were saloons popping up originally in 1876 in the spring and summer in tents. If they had a wooden floor, it was luxury. Then building began as quickly as supplies could be gotten in. But there was not local timber to use at first because there were no um, mills, sawmills. That was one of the earliest businesses, too, and hardware stores. So um, it all happened very, very fast in 1876 with a tent city going up and just a mess. It's it's along a creek, so that's where the the gold claims are. So streets are crooked and oddly shaped because that's where the creek went and people had their claims, And then you put in a street of saloons. And right away, there's two downtown business streets, but especially Main Street is the saloon district. And, of course, with the saloons came the dancing girls, the the hurdy-gurdy girls, who were the, you know, Ten Cents a Dance girls, that you could buy tickets to dance with them, and you could buy them outrageously priced drinks, that were pretty watered down to keep the girl sober and working, those women were not necessarily prostitutes. A very important thing to remember. But, of course, the prostitutes were there because the men were either single or they had come out to make their money and take it back home to the wife and children. So you have this town of healthy young men or for the most part healthy and and right away you know there's there's a wild wild business district but there are very sober-sided businesses as well because within a year families were moving in and businesses like there were three newspapers in that little place at one time the estimate of population by the fall of 1876 is 10,000, but we don't know because the U.S. census is on the 10 years, and there's no census taken until 1880 when the easy-to-grab gold is fading away. And so the miners are starting to move on to the next hot, hot prospect.
0: So Deadwood springs up out of nowhere, and the TV show is is pretty accurate in that regard, but historical movies and television shows get the history wrong more often than not, or bend it for the sake of drama, and what you end up with is something that at best loosely resembles the period it represents. But I heard that David Milch was a stickler for historical detail and accuracy. Did Jerry ever mention what he thought the Deadwood TV show got right or wrong in its portrayal of the people or the town?
1: Yes, he said that he didn't believe they used the F word all the time because it just doesn't show up in records of court cases and other writings. So that's a modern touch to show that they spoke terribly. And they did swear all the time. Adrienne Davis, who came to Deadwood early, wrote about how she'd grown up as a proper middle class lady in the East, um, believing that swearing was always accompanied by an angry face. And she says, here I see miners swearing happily at each other while they're having a good time. Call each other atrocious names. So I think that the producers wanted to capture the essence, the flavor. And because Jerry and I didn't get to spend that much time together, we never had a debate about that. But I... I have another point that I would have brought up with him, which is he believes that Mayor Farnham, Farnum, Farnham, um, was uh, really done wrong in the TV series because he's made to look like a, a little, weaselly, whiny, high-voiced guy who's always weird and complaining and and is a wimp, will we'll just go with wherever the strong wind blows from, um, and he thinks that's totally unfair, so that's why he wrote, what little there is known about Farnham's life in Deadwood and his accomplishments. So um, that that whole story is one that Jerry tried and tried to get changed, that the character changed, but they needed a character for comic relief, and that's what he served as, and to carry Gossip. That character told tales around town and and just nosed around. And and uh, Farnham wasn't that way. He he was a very prominent and very sincerely active and involved person who was trying to make Deadwood grow and govern itself and so on. Those were the two main things that Jerry talked about to me.
0: You mentioned Adrian Davis a really interesting and unique woman in Deadwood at that time. Could you tell us about her?
1: Okay, great. Um, She is, she was quite a little dynamo. And when I say little, she was four feet, five inches tall, with red hair and blue eyes. And she had been married for three years to Chambers Davis when they moved to Deadwood. But um, she is always referred to as a, Society woman in the finest circles of new York society, and we don 't know that no one has researched it jerry didn't i didn't for this book, but she wrote letters to the New York Graphic, which was a weekly publication, and they were lengthy. She wrote five of them that were published from. 1877 when she got there until early 1878 and she really had an open mind i think for the day and her class she tolerated the sounds the swearing she heard around her that sort of thing and the dirty prospectors the horrible streets which is one of the things i think that the tv series captured so well was uh These are mud streets beat up by ox feet and uh, horseshoes and they're muddy, uh, running with crud and and any water going through. And so the boardwalk sidewalks are up above the streets, but to go across the street, the ladies in their long skirts still had a problem because they weren't supposed to show any of the ankle of their boots. but they got by, and so did Adrian. But she wrote these wonderful letters, I think, that um compares Deadwood to what is familiar back east, and she's well aware of what people there expect of the frontier or think. She talks, but she's an optimist. She's got on rose clo- rose-colored glasses the whole time. She says um in 1878, when the town is a year and a half old, she says, Nearly all of Deadwood's picturesque roughness has disappeared. We now have fine hotels, a theater, large shops, numerous banks, some handsome residences. Well, that's all true, but you could count on two hands, you know, how many of those things were there. But she just sees a a wonderful future, and in that she joins her husband. They both were ready to stay for their lifetimes, and raising a family there, I think. She often, in the letters, refers to the brand new homestake mine in Lead, just up the gulch from Deadwood, uh, which is the beginning of the Hearst family fortune, among others. But, more importantly, it's the beginning of miners as employees, something that she didn't really think about but as uh, the homestake mine develops it it's an underground mine and it needs lots of capital to keep it running and get the parts of it opened up and dug out underground and and shored up and so on so she keeps talking about it but it really is the beginning of the end for deadwood because miners as employees live a whole different life than miners who are prospectors and on their own, and in lead company housing was built, and paychecks were passed out so and the and the Hearst Corporation, the owners of the homestake mine, built social services for their miners and their families, school and social hall so there was not a big uh, saloon or prostitution population in Leeds, ever. It stayed in Deadwood. But she sees it coming, and she does, She welcomes it as a good development, but she doesn't realize what it means for the town that she and her husband chose.
0: So what was Hearst's company doing differently than the prospectors?
1: The The fellows who came as prospectors could only get the, easy to grab gold. They couldn't dig into the quartz and process veins of gold that ran through quartz without huge capital investments. And so the homestake is the beginning of the next generation of mining in the Black Hills. And it went up until fairly recent years that it still was finding gold and still supported the town of Leeds. But The prospectors could come with what would come, with what they could carry, and then spend what they dug out of the ground in gold dust, which is the the free-floating gold that flows in the creeks and you get by panning. They also used a primitive form of hydraulic mining, which is a very devastating type of mining where you use high-pressure hoses and just sluice down a hillside just yank it down with the power of these pressure hoses and then take that dirt and process it for the loose gold that was not something that we would want on a huge scale it's rather like strip mining for coal very bad for the environment around
0: the storm broke in chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilley, narrated by Samuel
1: Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
0: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies there's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain such as near-death experiences what made the vikings go berserk and can i control my co-host with mk ultra wait what (laughs) anyway make sure to check out the mischief everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts everybody shush william shatner has something to say cat and jethro box of oddities what do you do
0: when the woman you love dies
1: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious.
0: Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Chambers Davis, the husband to Adrian Davis, was a, a fascinating man and he had an important job. Could you explain it?
1: He's an assayer. To assay gold, you uh, put a value on it, how much gold comes out of how much dirt or rock tells you the the value of a mining claim, basically how hard you're going to have to work and invest in the process to get to the gold. And so it's an essential office in any mining town, boomtown at the time. There would be an assay office of some degree of ability. He was very good and very well-trained. He was a Civil War vet who was head assayer at the Denver Mint in Colorado from 1868 to 1875. So he was, as I say, he was well-trained and came to Deadwood in 76, With his bride, he opened his own assay office, which is pretty much in the center of town. Nobody is worried about the environmental dangers of such places, and there are houses and stores and businesses around it. While they're living in a hotel, a respectable hotel, the Wentworth, they build a house that has an apartment for the couple to live in. It's the beginning of a, a permanent home, but temporary. And so they have this two-story building right downtown where he can refine ore all the way to the stage of gold bricks, gold bars, which is what people carry back east to talk to the banks and get loans to develop their mines or support their continued efforts. He He used chemicals. He used heat. He had three furnaces in that building and he had just out back a stamp mill which is for crushing the quartz that gold is found in and then through chemical means you clean out the waste rock and and get the pure gold out and his stamp mill was very small it was two stamps but that is a constant loud banging sound and when the stamp mill is running in a mining town, it's the sound of progress. You know, prosperity is coming because here, here comes all this gold being being worked or silver. So you've got chemicals, you've got heat, and very dangerous materials to work with. Very few safety precautions because there was little knowledge. I would like to point out another thing that a a an assay or a successful one. Needs besides his scientific knowledge is honesty and accuracy. He's got to be accurate to to get the right results because those real results will be tested, retested elsewhere before money will be passed out for development. And of course, he has to be totally honest that he doesn't take part of anyone's test sample and. Deal it. So he was all these things and he was very, very excited about supporting Deadwood's growth. Very involved in it just as Mayor Farnham was. He was in his late 30s. Adrienne was about his age and they did not have children yet when they came there. They lived in the house only a short time and then Adrian became very ill. No one knew what caused it. She went Back to the wentworth house, and then she got better, so she could move back home and She moves back into this chem lab that she lives in with the various fumes and so on circulating around the house and she got she gets very ill again, and the first the illness began on may first eighteen seventy eight and on June 3rd, she died at home.
0: And Chambers, her husband, follows her not long after.
1: He He's working with chemicals that are absolutely fatal things with a flu that's supposed to carry the fumes outside, and somehow that fails, and he in- inhales these horrible things. Nitric acid and potassium cyanide. Before that, he had damaged one of his eyes when there was a chemical explosion in the lab. But now he's inhaling these fumes one day, and he go, he goes quite out of his head for several hours afterwards, the paper reported. And then <laughs> he was better except for the excessive drooling, they wrote. So he was really damaged. And within days he was considered insane. Then... It was decided he was not insane, but only seven days after the accident, he married a 19-year-old girl who kind of appears out of nowhere, and we don't even know how they met. It's a really creepy uh, form of gold digging that I think she's doing, but we don't know for sure. Anyway, whether he was aware of what he was doing at that wedding, we don't know. He died 10 days after the wedding, and it's not even the end of April 1879, so within two years he and his wife are are dead, and it turns out that the new bride number two, the young girl, there's nothing for her to inherit, because he had put all his property under mortgages to get capital to develop his business, so... He got a nice Masonic funeral and then was buried at Mount Moriah, and Adrian's coffin was moved up there. You can still see the grave in Mount Moriah Cemetery if you visit Deadwood. Adrian's father finally placed one in 1895, years after, and it's still there, so you can visit the Chamberses.
0: Most fans of the TV show know about the sheriff, Seth Bullock, but there was another lawman in Deadwood named Con Stapleton. In the TV show, he shows up in a few episodes, but he's not portrayed in the best light. He's played for a comic effect like E.B. Farnham. But the real Con Stapleton was nothing to be trifled with.
1: Con Stapleton's life is a very typical young man on the frontier life, right to the end, and he had come to the States in 1872 from Ireland, and he came to Deadwood in 76 right at the beginning and was elected town marshal. But it was known, he knew it, that the position would be phased out when the city organized a formal government. They still had no government, and here's this young man being the law. He's about 29 years old at the time. So here's this young man Trying to be the law with all these rude crude hard riding hard drinking minors, but he's he's very successful he's he's a determined guy, and first thing he does is spends a good long time tracking down an escaped felon from Iowa who got out into the Black Hills and sending him back to Iowa to go serve his prison sentence. But as was the case in those days, Khan socialized with the local guys like himself. So on a January night in 1877, he's drinking with friends in Al Chapman's saloon in Deadwood. And some guy named Tom Smith just slams into the saloon. He has a drawn gun and says he'll kill anyone who moves levels his gun directly at David Lunt, who's part of Khan's group of friends. And Kahn tries to disarm him, but Smith shoots the gun. The bullet barely misses Kahn's head, but it goes right into Lunt's forehead. Lunt survives, however, walking and talking and, and acting as usual from mid-January until March 22nd. Uh, Sixty-seven days. Then one day he says, I have got a massive headache. I mean, my head really hurts. And he dies late that night. The bullet had been in his brain all that time. It was known to be there. But he had looked so fine and functioned so well for 60-some days. <laughs> Not that there was anything the doctors could have done about it at that time, but it, it was thought he had escaped So two doctors did an autopsy just to find what had happened. They found that a piece of bone, an inch-and-a-half-long piece of bone, had been pushed into his brain by the bullet, and then an abscess formed around that, and his brain swelled and filled with fluid. That's what killed him. But the fact that he was able to function uh, so well for so long is pretty amazing. But Conn was a good lawman, and, and yet he knew his his job was going to disappear. Still, he pursues this Smith guy who shot his friend. And Smith had left town, which was legal because the victim of the bullet survived. He was heard to be in San Francisco. And so when Lunt died, Con Stapleton notified authorities there, and they found and arrested Smith and sent him back to Yankton, where he was tried, put on trial. And um, unfortunately, we we know nothing more after the trial began. Uh, The records are gone. So, Kahn moved away in February of 1877. He moved to denver Leadville area in Colorado, and he died of unknown causes in September 1879, when he was only 31 years old. That is not untypical of life on the frontier for a single guy.
0: You didn't choose to write about some of the bigger names in Deadwood history, like Wild Bill Hickok, Seth Bullock, Calamity Jane. Is it because there's already so much written about them?
1: Partially. You know, one of the things that I was so happy, the way the HBO TV series handled it, was um, we talk about Wild Bill Hickok being in Deadwood. He was not even there three weeks. He was there 20 days when he was killed. And I thought, oh, they better not be making him an ongoing character. And they didn't. So that was very, very good. But there have been major biographies of him. So he's out of there. Seth Bullock, much more interesting and... I would like to see a major book on Seth, but Jerry didn't get to it. I don't know who might be working on it. And then that leaves Al swearingen, whom they chose to feature as their main character. And he is someone who very much interested Jerry Bryant. Jerry spent 16 years in Deadwood doing research for various projects, and any time he saw an article about Al Swearingen or the Gem Theater Saloon complex that Al created. Jerry copied it and kept it. His intention was to write a full biography of Al. Jerry and his wife Linda traveled. They went back to Al's hometown in Iowa, and Jerry succeeded in gaining All this information, which he turned over to me, and there will be a book, I hope, soon about that, about Al and his little nasty empire. Jerry called it manifest evil because that's what he thinks of Al, that he was just evilness personified walking the earth.
0: Could you share a story about Al Swearingen, something we don't know?
1: Al was world's worst husband. He uh, he beat his wives. He had, during the time he was in Deadwood, he had two different wives because the first one finally left him. And the newspapers of the time didn't uh, spend much space commiserating with women whose husbands or boyfriends beat them up. It was kind of like that's private and happens at home, and we don't talk about it. The Deadwood, one of the Deadwood papers went so far once to say that his first wife had come to court to ask for protection from her husband because he had beat her so badly that not only were her eyes black, but her face looked like jelly. And that's pretty strong language for any newspaper, any time. She was seen around town with black eyes all the time. She limped frequently. People knew. It was it was a very open secret. There's a lot of really evil, nasty stuff. It's said that at one point he controlled the opium trade in the area. We don't know. Jerry didn't find out if that is true. But we do know Jerry did find out that there was an opium den behind the Chinese laundry that was part of the Gem Theater complex. So... Al undoubtedly knew about that place. Al, alive, kept his life as secret as he could from people. There were not records. Most of what Jerry found was from court cases, because Al was creative as a businessman, shall we say. And Al did not sit for studio portraits. There are only two photos of him. Both are candid's one literally taken on the fly as he's driving a buggy. So he kept his life very secret, and he succeeded until Jerry Bryant tracked down the end of the story, which has been all mythology for a long time. So,
0: I came across an interview Jerry Bryant did about 10 years ago where he talked about Al Swearingen's obituary. He died under suspicious circumstances, didn't he?
1: Yes, he did. It's been really messed up by mythology since. One person speculated in print, and then the quote got copied and copied, and now it's become gospel about Al's death. The story was that he had gone to Denver, had failed at all businesses after after being completely divorced from the Gem Saloon, which he lost, for bad business practices and the the camps failing too, but that in in Denver he was in debt so badly he was trying to jump a freight, freight train during the night in the freight yards and he fell under it and was killed penniless. Well, Jared was a good researcher and he wasn't going to settle for that, so he followed the path of... The family, the overall family with multiple brothers and sisters who survived Al Swearengen, he found that the Denver coroner's autopsy report had gone back east, carried by one of the brothers who lived in somewhere in Colorado, not in Denver. But he accompanied the coffin back to the hometown in Iowa, and the paper there published the results of the autopsy. Also, Jerry tracked down more about where Al could have lived and would have lived in Denver and what he was doing. He was developing another mining property, it seems. He was taking the streetcar that went on, Jerry believed, on 16th Street, which is now the uh, a, a walking mall full of tourists, that he took that car out to his mine every day early in the morning and worked at his mine. Jerry came to believe that someone had sneaked up behind Al on the train or followed him to the train and sneaked up behind him and hit him on the back of the head fatally, and then Al fell off the train, dying or already dead. Al's hat was found 70 feet up the track, from where his body settled. So his hat went off early in the attack. His body was found when track workers coming in for the day shift came upon it. So quite a different story, and Jerry really was pleased to have gotten that far. He went back to the hometown, he and his wife Linda. They found the gravesite of Al. And um, that's all I'm going to say for now. (laughs) That book is in the works. I'm finishing it for Jerry based on his research.
0: So I know that that you don't write about him in your book, but I'd be remiss if I did an episode about Deadwood and didn't ask. Could you tell the story about Wild Bill Hickok's death, the, the real story?
1: Yes, I'd love to tell the story of Wild Bill because he's so associated with Deadwood. He arrived on July the 12th. And he was shot and killed on August the 2nd, same year, 1876, Edwards' first year. It's kind of a case of no good deed goes unpunished. He was a very generous guy, was Wild Bill. And when he saw young uh, cowboys at Dodge City and and so on that that were um, gambling away the money they had just been paid for months and months of cattle drive and drinking it up, He might take them aside, or when they could no longer afford to play or to entertain the ladies, he might give them money for food and sit down, have a fatherly talk with them. So the night before he was killed, someone who had come to Deadwood a few months before Wild Bill was very drunk in the saloon the number 10, where while Bill was playing poker, sitting in the corner this time, the way he liked to, you know, back away from the door, and he could see the room. There was a front door near him in the the saloon, and then there was a hidden back door that you accessed on the far side of the bar. So this guy named Jack McCall comes in. He's already drunk. Someone drops out of Bill's game, Bill's table, and... McCall sits in and is so drunk, is not playing well, and in a very short time loses all his money. So this is the night before Bill's death. Bill did his fatherly routine with this Jack McCall and gave him money and said, Go get a meal. McCall took the money and felt insulted. The next day, it sounds like later that same day or the next morning, uh, afternoon, he, he uh, had used Bill's money to drink and not to eat and hadn't done anything useful. He came back into the number 10 saloon, and this time it was evening, and Wild Bill had had to take a seat with his back to the door. He'd gotten a little loose. He must have felt comfortable in Deadwood, and he had done that. Now, I need to back up a little bit and say that by this time, the man was going into the second half of his 40s, and he could tell that his eagle eyes weren't as sharp as they once had been, which put him at a disadvantage as a gunfighter. Also, he knew he was bait for every tenderfoot, greenhorn, Anybody who thought they could improve their reputation if they even had a gunfight with him and survived. So he was getting challenges all the time by guys in Deadwood. In this very short time that he was there, he spent most of his time gambling, but he he was trying to prospect also. So this Jack McCall, he may have re, he may have been afraid that McCall was going to be that way, but not enough afraid that he asked to to sit in on the game with his back to the wall. But the man who was sitting with his back to the wall at the round table said, no, you know, it's a good seat for me tonight, that kind of thing. So Bill sat down. He could see the front door with peripheral vision. I think it would be off to his left, but he couldn't see anyone who would come in the back around the bar. So he'd been there playing. He wasn't doing very well that whole time in Deadwood as a gambler. And McCall, very drunk again, came into the number 10 saloon. And the men at the table looked up, saw who it was, and just ignored him. McCall wasn't a very scary guy. He was short even for the day at 5'6", and his eyes were slightly crossed. And he he was called broken Nose because he had a crooked nose that had been badly set after a fight. So, you know, no big threat. And he went over to the bar, and then all of a sudden came back right behind Bill and said, take that, and shot him in the back. The man across the table who was actually beating Wild Bill at the game right then thought for a split second that Wild Bill had shot him in anger, because his left wrist started burning. It turned out McCall's bullet had gone all the way through Bill's body and into the fellow's right wrist, and it stayed there for life because it was where it was. They couldn't take it out. McCall, realizing what he'd done, ran out the back door and into... And and right out back of the saloon, there's a horse waiting for its owner... You know, tied to the hitching rail. It was a hot, hot day. So um, the owner of that horse had loosened the saddle for the horse's comfort. And McCall tries to jump on the horse, falls on the ground. This is the kind of life I think that Jack McCall lived in general. Just a loser. He was. He made a living as a freight driver, which wasn't a very high or good-paying uh, profession. He kept running. He was quickly captured, and kept overnight, and they had a trial the next day. But there was no government yet in Deadwood, so basically it was a minor's court that tried him. They heard his story. He was claiming that Wild Bill had killed his brother, and I don't know if that's true, but uh, I don't think anyone does. So the jury took an hour and a half or two hours and found that he was not guilty, and that was that. He was released. But there were a lot of people around Deadwood who were fans of Hickok, and they were, they thought they might take justice in their own hands. So finally, some sympathetic soul went to McCall's house just within days and said to him that now the climate here in Deadwood no longer agreed with Jack, and he'd better leave town right away which McCall did, and he actually walked out of Deadwood. He didn't even have his own horse. So that's the story. And the next year, there is government in Yankton that tries him again, convicts him, and hangs him in the spring.
0: Was there ever anything going on between Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane?
1: Hickok was a fastidious man, who went against custom of the time and bathed every day. And Calamity Jane seldom bathed. There is no way they were ever lovers. She put forward that story. She wanted it to be true. He he had the great uh, Victorian view of women. You know, they were either angels or saints or... Well, the, the term historians use is madonnas or whores. And he was married that summer. He had been married recently. He was trying to get together a stake to go back and farm with his wife. He wasn't going to be a gunfighter anymore. Didn't want to. Didn't want to be in law enforcement. He'd had it. And so he didn't like being around the very, very foul-mouthed Calamity Jane. She couldn't say anything without swearing. And she was a very severe alcoholic, and he didn't approve. Of course, the Madonna would not drink anything but a little glass of sherry sometimes, you know. So Calamity Jane's whole way of life, except for nursing the sick and the quarantined, her whole way of life was just repulsive to a man like Wild Bill Hickok.
0: David Milch definitely got that part right. She she swore a lot and drank a lot on the show. Mm-hmm.
1: And looked kind of dirty around the edges.
0: Great fun talking to you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Deadwood Saints and Sinners by Jerry L. Bryant and my guest Barbara Pfeiffer is available through Amazon and other online book retailers as well as local Deadwood bookshops should you choose, and I highly recommend it, to spend some summer vacation days there this year. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow.